0: The jeweler takes out a black cloth, puts it across the glass, um, you know, countertop, right? And then takes the diamond ring and puts it on the black canvas, if you will, to set a great contrast. That's the reason they do it. It's, It's to create a contrast for the sake of a sale, right? We're... God's word here is setting us a contrast for the sake of repentance and worship. And so that's, that's where we're headed this morning, this glorious contrast. Before we dive in, let's, let's pray. Father, would you arrest our minds right now and our attention right now and our hearts and show us the glory of the contrast Not only in this text, but in all of our life. Lord, uh, help us to behold the, the glory of our own contrast. That we were once dead in our sins and you have given us new life. Lord, we were once in darkness and you turned the lights on in our hearts. What a contrast. Lord, help us. Seize our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's read verses 11 through 17. Sorry, Richard, I had cut you off. You were supposed to do this, but I'm a little too excited this morning. Verse 11. And remember, keep this in contrast to verses 1 to 10. Worship, worship, worship. This great, glorious worship from Hannah. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy, that's Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Here's your contrast. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No! You must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. The men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You may be seated. It's the word of the Lord. And I'm saying to us, this text exists to show us the glory of a contrast. And so you've got this opening moment this contrast of Hannah and she's worshiping God with this great song or prayer not sure which but and then you've got the boy it tells us just just a little boy is ministering to the Lord verse 11 in the presence of Eli the priest and so you've got mom and she's worshiping you've got the boy and he's ministering to the Lord and then you have these grown men who scripture tells us are worthless men And they don't know the Lord. We've already heard about these worthless men back in chapter 1, verse 3, where we're told that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Meaning, right, these are the guys who are responsible for leading the people in godliness. These are the ones, feet on the ground, Their role among the people was to lead them to repentance and to lead them to God. They were the ones who ought to be calling the people out of the darkness and in repentance to the Lord. And so they're the ones who are to be making sacrifices. That's what a priest would do. On behalf of the people, they're the ones to mediate the people's sins before the Lord. That's their Job now think further these are precursors to Christ. that's who they are. The great high priest and this is how we're introduced to these precursors to Christ. they were worthless men. It's not the first time the word worthless is used in this book. We're only you know this far into. 55 chapters, and this word worthless has already been used. It was when Hannah was praying at the doorsteps of the temple. Eli comes to her, and he assumes she's a drunken woman, and she responds, no, my Lord, I, I'm, don't, don't think of me like that. I'm not a worthless woman. There's another contrast, right? The woman who prays at the doorframe of the temple is being accused by Eli of basically being worthless. Don't view me like that. That man's sons are worthless men. Translated, there is a stench in Shiloh. These guys smell rotten and God is going to be cleaning house. Jesus's harshest words in his day were not towards the sinner, but towards the self-righteous. Not towards the sinner who is in darkness, they're in darkness, but towards the self-righteous who thought they were the light. When I say God is going to clean house in this day, don't think He's going to clean up out there, and and same goes for our day. When when I say God's going to clean house in our day, don't think yeah, out there because that's a mess out there. No, we're talking in here, and, and let's make it even more personal. We're talking in here that the Lord would clean house in here, in our hearts. And so as you read verses 11 through 18, remember verse 1 through 10. And this massive contrast is on display. Hannah's crying out in worship to the Lord. Thanks be to God. All the different attributes of of God she's listing. And then you've got Samuel who's ministering before the Lord. And then you have these grown men who are the priests. And we're told they're worthless. They're the ones, actually, that should be bringing some godliness game. It tells us further in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Here's the thing. The boy is ministering to the Lord while the men don't know the Lord. They knew of the Lord. Good grief, these These men have grown up, right, in Israeli Sunday school. They know about God. That's not what the the Scripture is telling us. They know all sorts of things about the Lord. They, They know the requirements for them as priests. They know about the Lord. Their problem wasn't that they didn't have knowledge. Their problem was... They didn't know God. And there's a huge difference. They knew plenty about the Lord. They just didn't know the Lord. And with that, I want to address the church kids who are in the room. Church kids, you can be, well, you, you might be eight. You might be 18. You might be 58. I'm a church kid. I want to address the church kids in the room. And I want to address, if I could, the pastor's kids in the room. I've got four in the room. Two of them are married, so I've kind of got six in the room. But I'm not just talking about my kids, pastor's kids. There are others in the room, your pastor's kids. And I want to address the MKs in the room. We have missionary kids in the room. I want to address church kids in the room. Listen, church kids, knowing about him doesn't equal knowing him. And some, well, at different times throughout the year, I'm going to pause and bring this, right? We're doing it here again, because in the church, you need to hear this, that knowing about the Lord is not equal to knowing the Lord. And you can have all sorts of knowledge And you can have all the Sunday school stories. And you can know all sorts of truths about him and not know him. And at some point, as church kids, we've got to grow up and stand on our own two feet. And not assume salvation. And say, God, I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. When it says they didn't know him, it means they knew what they were to do as priests, but they had no regard for him. They had no regard for the Lord. The Bible uses the word contempt. They treated him with contempt rather than Hannah and her worship, rather than Samuel, who's ministering before the Lord. They are, hear me, the black drop upon which God will take his diamond ring to display the glory, the hope in the midst of the darkness. Because these are such dark days in Israel. In that dark black drop setting, Hannah, Samuel. It is God showing us in the darkness of Israel that there is hope. The diamond of his mercy is being poured out not because Israel is repenting. They're not repenting. They're not even close to repenting at this point. But God in his mercy says, here, because he's a faithful God. The diamond of his mercy and grace and faithfulness is on display here in the contrast. Because he ought to, they deserve to be forgotten and abandoned. And God's not gonna do that. He's a covenant keeping God. And so these worthless fellows, we read of them in the Old Testament. We read of them in the New Testament as well, right? In the New Testament, they're called scribes and Pharisees. Jesus mentions them by another name. He calls them blind guides. Now, isn't that good imagery? Like Kim and I, when we travel overseas especially, we like to take tours. Can you I was trying to imagine? A blind tour guide. I'm trying to imagine. All right, we're going to go to Italy. And over here, you know, the blind guide is saying, is the Colosseum. And it's not. It's an Italian cafe. It looks wonderful. We should visit that cafe after we see the Colosseum, which is over here. Right? And so Jesus is saying, you've got blind guides. That's who these guys are. Listen. We have blind guides today, in the church today. I pray I don't say this self-righteously. It's not my desire, but know this. We have blind guides leading the church in America today, and it always surprises us for some reason. It shouldn't surprise us. It's as old as 1 Samuel. There's nothing new here. So these hucksters are rotten to the core, and it surprises us because what? They're the priests. And they're supposed to be serving God's people. So let's unpack those verses that we read there. What's going on there? Well, I want you to imagine you're an Old Testament family and you're making your way just as others would do. That's how the book started, right? Elkanah's taking his family to Shiloh. Well, this happened yearly. And so you're taking your family to Shiloh and it's a time for you to go there to make sacrifices, to worship and to have a celebration meal together as part of your worship. Well, part of that meal was to be for the priests. And you can read about all of that in Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. We don't have time to turn this morning, but Leviticus tells us that the fat of the sacrifice was to be burned off, it was for the Lord, all right? So burn it off as you're cooking your meat, burn off the fat, it was to be what? A sweet aroma to the Lord. We've got all of those pictures and imagery and how, how the Old Testament unpacks that. It was the, this idea, though, that as the, the fat was burned off, that was, the, that was prior to anybody eating, all right? That is the first portion, if you will, was this aroma to the Lord. So the first portion goes to the Lord. The second portion was actually for the priest. Your family would give a portion, and this text even tells of that, give a portion to the priest who served the people at the temple. So the first portion to God, second portion to the priest. But what was happening was these worthless men would send a servant to, into your family camp, into that setting, And um, the servant would take three-pronged fork, jab it into your meat. Whatever came out, we're taking that with us. Uh, And if it wasn't cooked, he would just demand the raw meat is what we're told. So hear that. Raw meat before the Lord's portion was burned off. We're just going to take it. That's what's going on here. And it tells us if they resisted, they would take it by force. So the servants of the people were stealing from the very people they were to serve and from God. The ones responsible to lead people into holy worship of God were disregarding that worship And serving themselves. Here again, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Another way to say it is at the very doorstep of the temple, where worship and repentance takes place, where God's presence is, you have the highest leaders of the land there, and they don't even know the Lord. How in the world are they going to lead God's people back to him? They simply can't. And that's why we have barren Israel. Spiritually barren Israel. But it's also there where the glorious contrast is revealed because God is raising up a boy. Samuel. More on that to come, but... now at the very place where the grossness of sin is dealt with by the mercy of God they are mercy mercilessly sinning grossly it gets worse we'll get there in a few minutes number two is the blessing is contrasted with judgment verse 18 Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Now, he's going to keep repeating. He's, he's before the Lord. He's in the Lord. He's, he's with the Lord. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe. That's cute. He's got a little robe for Sammy. And take it to him each year. So every year when they'd go back, she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, here's the blessing. The Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew. This is the blessing in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from the people. No, my sons, it is no no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And there came a man of God to Eli, who says to him, and we'll we'll just pause there, we'll come back. First of all, there's just this blessing of Samuel, where again, he's before the Lord, he's with the Lord, he's in the Lord, and he's ministering to the Lord. And we ought to notice that again and again and again, it's going to tell us he's a boy. It even goes into the detail to say it's a little robe. He's a boy. The boy is ministering to the Lord. And to that, I just want us to hear, God will determine who he determines he will use. (laughs) It's us that says, no, can't can't be the boy. You know, if we're back here in this time, we would be saying, can't be the boy. Well, God says it'll be the boy, and the reason why it's going to be the boy is because God will be glorified, because it's a boy. Because it's not about the boy, it's about the glory of the Lord, all right? So you've got that going on there. This boy was to be a light shining in the dark days, where, remember Judges twenty-one twenty-five, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, in particular The most religious, if you will, the the most supposed to be godly person in the camp is Eli's sons. They are doing everything that was right in their own eyes. That is to say, God says, here's a boy, which is to say, here's hope in the darkness, which is to say to us, church, stay focused on the Lord in our dark days. We're living in dark days. Stay focused on the Lord in our day. God's at work. Stay the course. Scripture exhorts us. Alistair Begg tells of a book written by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a bishop in Liverpool. The book is about some people in the 18th century England whom God raised up to preach. The opening chapter of the book, J.C. Ryle, so you got these long titles, and so in, in, in not only titles, but chapter titles. Here's the title of the chapter. Chapter one. The religious and moral condition of England at the beginning of the 18th century. Well, the religious and moral condition of England in the 18th century was darkness. It was utter, utter darkness. Who cares about God? And so J.C. Ryle writes about some guys who were born. Wesley, 1703. Whitfield, 1714. Grimshaw, 1708. Daniel Rowland, 1713. In these dark and empty days, Alistair Begg speaks of the Emptiness where Christianity in England, people would have said, what are you doing, God? And the answer was, well, here's a boy. His name's John. He's got a brother, Charles, too. And here's a boy. And his name's Daniel. And here's a boy, John. Again, in the darkness, the contrast here, in the darkness, here's a boy, Samuel a blessed boy. Hannah's going to bring to him a robe each year on that yearly visit as they make sacrifices there in Shiloh. I want you to imagine, right, moms, imagine as she would stitch that robe each year. With joy, with tears, with remembrance, This is my boy that God gave me that I was crying out for. And I could just imagine her weeping as she stitched that new little robe for little Sammy. I remember every school year when growing up, my brother and I, um, mom would take us shopping. We'd get some new school clothes. Well, this is a notch up from that, <laughs> okay? This is quite a notch up from that. This is, I am clothing you, Samuel, in the role in which you've been called to. This is not just a new robe for the year. This is, you have a role, and you're to be clothed appropriately for that role. Now, the worthless men, they were wearing the garb. They, they had the clothing, They wore the clothes, and yet, as they wore that clothes, did you hear some of the stuff we read? Won't repeat for the sake of the children, right? As they wore those garments, it was further contempt against the Lord. Samuel, this is who you are, this is your new robe. God is doing something here. He's raising up a new man. He's replacing the old. Here, Samuel, here's your new robe. Wear it in such a way that it honors the Lord. Clothe yourself. And I want to say that to you, church. Clothe yourself with the garments that have been provided for you. What am I talking about? Christian. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed. That, that, do we understand the, the the glory? This is not just here. Here's a little robe, Samuel. No. Wear what you've been provided for the role that you've been called to, that you've been given. Christian, wear what you've been provided for the role for which you've been called to. When we say I am Christian, it doesn't mean that I was born in America. It means I've been blood bought By the blood of Christ, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It means that on the cross, Christ not only took our sins and clothed himself in the grossness of all of our sins, but he imputed, he gave us his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Wear your clothes well in this world, in this dark world. Samuel, wear the robe as you minister to the Lord. Isaiah 61 says it like this, looking forward to Christ. I don't know how much he grasped of this, but we get to look back and look, wow, prophetic word, whoo, wow. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Christian, you have the imputed clothing, the righteousness of Christ. Don't call yourself Christian and live like the world. Don't be that worthless man or woman. Wearing the garb and living like the world in darkness. Don't live in that contempt of God. You've been justified, not by some high priest here in the Old Testament, but by the great high priest who is Jesus Christ. Because of his ultimate sacrifice, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul will tell us. Put him on. Today, put them on again tomorrow. Growing godliness from one degree of glory to another that we might be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Yes, you've been saved. Praise be to God for salvation. But that's not the end of the story. God, help us to grow in godliness in our dark days. The gospel continues It's not just for salvation. It's for sanctification. It's for our growth. For the glory of God. It continues. So clothe yourself in his righteousness. Live in the clothing in which Christ has provided his people. Well, the blessing of Hannah's son is an utter contrast with the judgment of Eli's sons. Verse 27 We can't read all of this, but an unnamed prophet shows up. Verse 27, and there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus the Lord has said, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to house of Pharaoh? In these next, I don't know, 10 verses probably, 10 or so verses, Ten times, he's just going to say the house, the house, the house, the house. And what you're going to see is God is going to tear down the house and he's going to rebuild the house. Look at verse 29. Why then do you scorn, this is the prophet to, to Eli, do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every? offering of my people, Israel. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. And it's just going to go down from there. The house is crumbling. And God is the one who tears it down. But in midst of that, verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart. This is the diamond on the black backdrop that is Israel. Here's the diamond. I'm raising up a faithful priest, and he will do what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Praise the Lord. This is the glory of the reversal. Remember last week when we were talking about in Mary's, I mean, not Mary's, in Mary's also. But in Hannah's song, there's themes, reversal, defeat of the enemy, and the king is coming. And we were saying, like, that's overreach. Like, this, this really should just be an announcement. I'm having a baby. <laughs> not, not reversal, not defeated enemy, not king. It seems a bit overreach, but it's a prophetic song. And that is contrasted with the contempt of Eli's sons. The house is coming down, but the Lord says, I will raise up a faithful priest. Is that Samuel? Well, sort of, but no. If that makes any sense. Sort of is. Samuel, Samuel wasn't a priest. He functioned like one at times. He looks like one at times. He has the godliness of one, but he was not from the line of priests, the line of Aaron. And so he technically was not one. So in some way, we might think of him as the one that God is raising up here in verse 35. And he sort of is, but he isn't. Right? He isn't. He's, he's a bright light in these dark days, but he's not the light. He's, he's hope in the hopelessness, but he's not the hope. Because a light is coming. And a hope is coming. A priest is coming that will be raised up, that God will build, that is in my heart and my mind, and I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before me. A light is coming. A hope is coming. A priest is coming. We can read about that in Hebrews. Remember, when you're reading your New Testament, it assumes you understand something of your Old Testament. Especially Hebrews. So, Hebrews 7 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to other sacrifices daily, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Of course, Hebrews is telling us about the great high priest who is Jesus. Hebrews 8 Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all. "...all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption," as opposed to those Old Testament priests who couldn't secure an eternal redemption. "...for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Praise him, church. Want some glorious contrast? Yes, we are contrasting the blessing of this boy versus the judgment of those those men, um, that's a wonderful contrast but 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 here the further contrast contrast Samuel Jesus the high priest the great high priest once and for all sacrifice high priest who has provided for us the clothing the garments of his righteousness who has mediated with the father on our behalf Well, let me invite the worship team to come forward. I want to make a small point. Hannah, the mother, is contrasted with Eli, the father. They're not married. Two different, right? But Hannah, the mother, is contrasted with Eli, the father. Hannah, very quickly, is found seeking the Lord. Eli seems to be completely aloof from the Lord. Parents, don't make an idol out of your children. Don't make them the center of your life. Don't fear them more than you fear the Lord. Eli, what are you doing? Hannah, if I could say, ladies, in this culture, here she is. She's on her face before God at the temple. Eli, where are you? You don't even know that this is a woman seeking God's face. Eli kept hearing, we're told, of the ongoing contempt of his sons. And the word is out on the streets about these guys. How could it not be on the streets? You heard of what they were doing. The tent of meeting is where they were having just wicked relations with women who were there serving at the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is where Moses met with the Lord. And all of God's glory and holiness was on display. What's getting around That right there, Eli's sons are disagreeing, disregarding the Lord. Father, would you help us this morning? Lord, it is easy for us to live in contempt too. I pray that you might help us by your spirit, by your grace, even as we sing now. Lord, may just there be a sweet, atmosphere of conviction and repentance, Lord, and just turning our gaze to you yet again today. Let's stand together, church, and let's lift our voices and let's sing.